analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Sort of an overcast gray day here in Kamloops. Looks like, ah, kind of looks like snow is coming. Uh, we have a uh, packed show for you today. We'll uh, get our civic recap with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian, who's already in the studio. We'll introduce him officially in a second. We'll also dive into that uh, memorandum of understanding, a rather historic one signed yesterday down in the Lower Nicola among five First Nations bands. Uh, dive into the Brexit issue, and then uh, we'll finish off talking about children and screen time. So a lot of exciting stuff in the Woodford show ahead. Uh, but let's get to our civic update, our weekly visit with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Ken, welcome. Well, it's good to be here. Episode one of a new era. <laughs> Any changes you want? You were mentioning a sing-along, possibly. Was that the deal or what? Let's save your listeners. <laughs> All right, Ken, uh, Kamloops Council meeting yesterday. Uh, a motion by Kamloops Councilor Michael Riley to roll back parking fees to last year's levels. So I guess the raise came in January 1st. You you voted against. What's, what was your issue with this thing? Well, uh, you know, uh, my vote was largely predicated on the fact that we've already done it. So I, I don't like it when government does something, then changes their mind, and then undoes it, and, mm. and, and that sort of thing. But uh, the uh, debate was really a philosophical one. It's where do you want to pay? Do you want to pay 25 cents per hour per parker, uh, or do you want to have uh, taxes for businesses go up to fund what is going to be required to provide adequate parking in our downtown? So, you know, it's $125,000 that we have foregone in terms of the uh, revenue from that. So, uh, so be it. That's the decision of council. So that's the correct decision. And uh, we'll uh, work quickly to reduce those uh, rates back to where they were before. And uh, then uh, we'll be waiting until probably June when we hear from the transportation choices uh, study about what uh, kinds of infrastructure we might be looking for in terms of uh, downtown parking. Okay. Uh, when can drivers see the, uh, it's going to take, I assume you got to go and reprogram all the meters. So when are we going to see it curbside? You know, probably three to five days. Uh, you know, council's decision yesterday was final. So that's yeah. uh, what's going to happen now. So they'll be out there making those changes. It's a software change as well as going out to each and every uh, kiosk and reprogramming them. So it costs uh, about $12,000 to do it two weeks ago. It's going to cost us $12,000 to undo it now. 24000 in. Interesting. Okay. Uh, you and I have talked about this, uh, and you've talked about this over the years, but uh, we have a downtown parking situation. we got this potential Performing Arts Centre coming in, which may further complicate things depending on how we forge ahead on that front. Uh, and then we have this parking meter dealio. So uh, this council apparently saying, hey, listen, we need some data on this. I believe you you've concurred with that. So when are we going to see this hard data assessing the downtown parking situation so we can then say, all right, this is what's going on. Now let's discuss what to do about it. Yeah, and so uh, about a year ago, council rejected the notion of a parking study. They felt that the price tag of 100000 was a little too high. So uh, staff, being quite uh, creative, uh, looked at ways that they could get that data through other uh, planning initiatives that we had ongoing. So this transportation demand management plan that uh, we're working on will uh, address the issue of parking. And as we've talked about before, it's really not a street-level retail kind of problem. Yeah. It's 
second floor and above. And, and I worry when I see, uh, you know, large uh, companies vacating whole floors of, of some of the downtown high-rises because uh, that indicates to me that they're uh, looking for places where their staff would be better served in terms of parking. So, uh, you know, re-renting those is going to be problematic. And if you don't rent them, you don't have the people. If you don't have the people, they're not downstairs eating in the restaurants right. and going to the drugstore and everything else. Yeah. So, it, you know, we have to be conscious of that uh, problem. It's not an overt uh, in-your-face kind of problem because you can't get uh, a parking spot to, uh, you know, go to the shoe store. But rather, it's it's something that's a bit more insidious. Yeah, but you also don't want to be building parkades everywhere. We've got a couple of those downtown. They're not exactly the prettiest structures in the world. And you do have some building activity. The downtown is seeing some major projects. Does council have the muscle to mandate, okay, if you're going to build a building here, we want so many floors of, of underground parking or, or whatever? Yeah, uh, we we can, and and uh, Mr. Kwiatkowski yesterday signaled that you know they're looking at parking requirements downtown because they're quite old actually, and and parking requirements have changed uh, over the years. But uh, you know there are a number of ways that you can facilitate getting parking. You can buy up uh, properties. You can look at increasing uh, transit. You can look at park and rides. Uh, you know we have an issue at the hospital in terms of the overflow from staffing, in particular filling yeah. up our streets. So you know. We, we need to work with a number of partners and, and uh, find a way to make this work. But uh, as uh, was discussed yesterday, you know, I think that separating uh, the Performing Arts Centre from the parking problem was probably a good idea. And as you speak about uh, underground parking, the deeper you go, the more, the more expensive, expensive it yeah. gets. So that's why, you know, although they might look ugly, these above-ground parkades are, uh, you know, a, a cheaper option for the public. And my understanding is that the Seymour Parkade may be able to take additional levels, so it mm. might be cheaper to go up than down. Interesting. Uh, as sort of a tangent to that, uh, perhaps addressing the parking situation means addressing how people are coming to the downtown core. There's a transportation sort of uh, consultation going on and meeting held actually last night. But is th is that another focus and, and or how do you see that being addressed? I mean, it, it's a little new for people in Kamloops to be uh, jumping into buses. It's not exactly the mentality here as it would be, say, in a downtown Vancouver. But I assume that that's a part of the part of the solution. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, active transportation is the way of the future. So as we look at alternatives in terms of getting people downtown either by walking cycling transit uh, carpooling those kinds of things that is the way of the future and and that's what we want to encourage Kamloops uh, residents to do but as you point out we're not going to go from pickup trucks to electric bikes in in, in one uh, uh, you know a term of council so let's uh, look at this incrementally and and make sure uh, that we can accommodate both modes of transportation and uh, you know any uh, city that's worth its salt doesn't have a whole bunch of uh, traffic in their downtown core. And so we want to kind of discourage as much as possible that notion of parking downtown, uh, but at the same time wanting people to be there and, and walking about and creating that vibrancy sure, yeah. that, that really makes downtown a, a place that you want to go to. I want to revisit a subject with you. I've talked to you about this before, but we've had uh, some developments since, but uh, we 
we last we touched base with the Attorney General, uh, there was assurances that we were going to forge ahead, both in interviews with us, both in conversations with you, I believe about June, July of, the, of last year, on this $50 million estimated uh, building of the new downtown BCLC headquarters, something the city was excited about as sort of an entryway into the downtown core. You raised the possibility recently of working with them on, on a potentially a new city hall concept. Um, but uh, we're getting word now that potentially this project is completely off the rails. Is your concern level mounting on that front? Or no? Well, yeah, my concern is always mounting. I think, uh, and I've said it before, that uh, the new BCLC headquarters would be kind of a gateway to downtown, and, and you would have uh, you know an anchor on one end and, and the new uh, 540 Marriott development at the other end kind of anchoring it as well. But, you know, if I was a KCBIA, I'd be more worried about the BCLC situation than 25 cents an hour on parking because uh, it is very true that the spillout uh, of the BCLC employees into the downtown area is an important economic driver in Kamloops. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to that end, I have a meeting with Jim Lightbody tomorrow morning, and uh, I want to hear from uh, him as to, you know, are there any changes? Last I spoke to uh, Minister Eby was that uh, A, Kamloops was going to remain the headquarters of BCLC, uh, no doubt about that, and that uh, there was going to be a new building because they were outgrowing the one that they have, and, yeah. and their problem's probably not much different than ours at City Hall. We have about uh, 28% left in the life expectancy of City Hall, and both of those buildings are about the same vintage, so, you know, it gets to the point where you're in a building that it, it's just inefficient for the taxpayer, or in their case, in, inefficient for the corporation to keep, uh, you know, kind of doing that repair and, and modify. Uh, the Attorney General's ministry, just so you know, uh, has said they're committed to keeping the headquarters in Kamloops. Uh, and as for the project itself, they're going to have something to announce later this week, quote-unquote. But all the signs are there that something has gone seriously awry. So yeah. it doesn't have the it doesn't have the, uh, the tone of a good news announcement to come, shall I yeah. say. Well, uh, <clears throat> I'll await uh, my meeting with, with Jim Lightbody and, and uh, you know, hear from him as to, you know, what the, the plans are. But uh, I'm optimistic mystic as always and uh, if there is a chance for us to uh, co-produce a building there that uh, maybe a lease to purchase or a, a, a private public partnership uh, is something that could accommodate the needs of city hall that's worth looking at because the the window only opens once so you may as yeah. well take a good look at all the options uh, you know while you have that chance uh last question uh, council heard last night uh, from uh, the fo fine folks out at kamloops airport a pretty record year what 351,000 people going to the airport in kamloops uh, which is good news. However, uh, you compare that to Kelowna, which has uh, outstripped our pace of progression and has cracked the top 10 busiest airports in the country. Um, what's your feeling about sort of the future at Kamloops Airport? I... Yeah, well, uh, kudos to Kelowna. I think they were... Uh 2.5 million uh, mm. passengers last year. That's huge. And, uh, you know, it, it reflects the fact that that's really a regional airport for Kelowna, Vernon, Penticton, and, and population-wise, they're going to beat us hands down. But Calms, uh, you know, has a unique market, and uh, we are uh, working with Vantage Airport Group to maximize uh, the revenue that we can get from our airport in terms of aviation industries. So we're looking at expanding aprons and taxiways so we'll have more airside 
commercial uh, space available. So uh, good uh, news from Heather McCarley and, and kudos to her and her staff out there because uh, they've really uh, made a, a significant difference at the airport. It's just, uh, it, it's really changed over the last couple of years yeah. and uh, a really exciting place to be. And uh, we need to work with our carriers to have better air service. I, I continue to get a lot of complaints about the cancellation of the late night, early morning flight. And we need to work with Air Canada to sustain the Rouge-Toronto connection. Yeah, absolutely. Ken, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for popping in. Look forward to touching base with you once a week. Thank you very much, Shane. And you're killing the suit game today, by the way. Great. (laughs) Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. And we'll be right back here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll dive into those First Nation housing announcements made yesterday. More on Radio NL after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Yesterday, a pretty hefty announcement announced down in the Merritt Lower Nicola area about some housing on First Nations land. Uh, pleasure to be diving into that topic with my next guest, the Upper Nicola Indian Band Councillor, Brian Holmes. Brian's welcome. Hey, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, so, uh, first off, uh, this Indigenous Asset Management Memorandum of Understanding uh, addresses uh, what I think is a pretty drastic housing need uh, that has been demonstrated on, on First Nations land. Uh, give me a sense of the scope here. What does this enable uh, uh, the five bands involved in this particular announcement to do? Well, with, with this announcement and the, and the stuff that we're looking at, at doing and within this agreement, it's it's going to give a good uh, opportunity to assess um, you know all the housing all the houses on reserve uh, and it's not specific to one particular program as some of the housing programs go on reserve uh, but it's going to be open to you know um, private owned ones uh, band owned homes uh, just so it's a it's a big capture of everything to really assess where and what kind of condition the current houses are on reserve, um, as opposed to how we've been able to do it. It's we haven't been able to to keep up and and uh, move along as the housing is aging on reserve. So uh, one of the interesting aspects about this that stands out to me, Brian, and my understanding is that generally reserve land is the domain of the federal government, which um, I'm sure you will tell me hasn't done a whole lot in this housing aspect. But now we have the province of British Columbia, BC Housing, stepping in and actually doing stuff. How unique is that and how, how welcome is that as far as First Nations people? Uh, it, it's it's, it's kind of huge. Uh, I think we said it was is kind of precedent setting for the province to be kind of stepping in on and assisting on reserve um and it's it's big it's a big step and it's a big help and it's going to be a change uh you know when we look forward to to engaging on this um you know and and getting our just to, even the assessment part is going to be good but also the the uh part of the agreement is the capacity building um to keep that uh you know that knowledge going and, and the information we're doing to, you know, sustain us for the for the long term. So that that's really great. I I think it's really really good that the province has been stepping up, uh, as you hear with with other initiatives. 
Uh, one of the one of the interesting tangents to this, and I suppose it's a bitter irony as well, is while these housing uh, initiatives are obviously welcomed, um, on the other hand, uh, First Nations people still don't have the right to own their own homes on their own land. Is that an aspect of the situation that is in dire need of being addressed? Well, it depends on how you look at it. There is there's certain ways you can go about owning your own home on reserve. It's it's just a little bit more difficult uh, to to go through that process. Um, so it's a you know between all the uh, all the stuff they're going through Indian Affairs and and the paperwork, it's a little more difficult. But uh, definitely uh, you know an issue that could be addressed or looked at. You know, trying to get the mortgage to to start to build your house is is even a, a difficult process, uh, especially if it's on reserve, um, and if it's a private. Uh, if you want to go through it privately, it, it's even more difficult as opposed to going through one of the programs, um, which run through the band, which are few and far between. Yeah, but it just doesn't, it just seems odd to, I mean, it's obviously something I think needs to be addressed, and I think the Harper government made some noise about doing it and, and then didn't follow through, and the Trudeau government hasn't done much either, to be fair. Uh, but, you know, as, as as a non-Aboriginal, I can go into any community in the province and, and make a bid on a house and sign a mortgage, and it's fairly, you know, as long as I have some cash to back me up, it's a fairly easy-peasy process, and it seems to me that there should be some equivalency there for First Nations on their own land. Yeah, and and there is. I I just recently went through this process, so I have a pretty fresh idea of that process and the the struggle to um, you know to go through that process. So I, I think there's been changes made, uh, especially with uh, the banks. But when you when you get up into the the higher part and the government part, uh, I don't think there's been a whole lot of change to really assist and really analyze that system to try to make it better. Um, definitely more work needs to be done there to make it uh, easier. Um, but there is ways of doing it, but it is it is difficult. Mm. Okay, uh, last question, Brian. You guys assigned this MOU, obviously exciting. As far as the Upper Nickel Indian Band is concerned, um, what are the next steps? Now that this thing is done, what do you do next to kind of facilitate this assessment of all of the stuff uh, in your responsibility and then see what you can do about it? Uh, so next steps we'll be we'll be working with the, the BC housing representatives and and setting up the format. Um, I think we're looking at a format, um, a formal agreement or a framework agreement to uh, to get things going, and we'll start you know assessing, start the assessment training, uh, the capacity building, and, and start that and and really get that going. And I think that's going to be the key part at the beginning is the the assessment. Uh, and then moving forward from there and hopefully, you know, bringing people in that uh, can take on this training and, and continue the work uh, prior or past what the, the MAU is, is slated for. Is there any projects that are going to be looking at being sort of shovel in the ground ready anytime soon or no? As for housing, uh, we, we got the... Uh, there's another uh, program that came that we got funded for for a unit, 24 units to be built on reserve. Excellent. Uh, Brian, thanks for your time this morning, and uh, congratulations on an obviously very exciting announcement. Yes, for sure. 
Uh, there we go. Upper Nickel Indian Band Councillor Brian Holmes talking about the Indigenous Asset Management Memorandum of Understanding signed between uh, five Indian bands as well as the province and BC Housing yesterday and some much needed addressing of the housing situation on Aboriginal land. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show here on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll dive into what a hard Brexit means. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome. Thank you for tuning in. Well, a lot of drama playing out, or has been playing out for a long time now in the United Kingdom since the results of the Brexit referendum. Uh, recently, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May suffering her government's worst defeat in almost 100 years in the United Kingdom's parliament as her... Uh, agreement or a deal to try and get out of uh, bonds of the European Union uh, failed spectacularly. So what does that mean? Uh, we've invited on the show and from the UBC Institute for European Studies, Kurt Hubner joins us. Kurt, how are you? Good morning. I'm good. Yourself? I am very good. Thank you for coming on. really appreciate this. Hey, so uh, as we were discussing in, in this particular segment, it looks like uh, the United Kingdom is heading for a, a very hard and bitter Brexit. Uh, as we stare down the barrel of this thing, uh, what are the ramifications? I mean, what does this mean? Yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly uh, whether, uh, how the future of the UK uh, will look like, uh, whether there will be a serious no deal Brexit. This would be the kind of the worst case scenario. But we don't know what it is really is happening because uh, since it is, uh, this decision yesterday in the parliament, this enormous defeat and rejection of the plan of Theresa May, now a lot of cards are open on the, on the table. And uh, uh, today there is this uh, no confidence vote. I don't think so uh, that this will be uh, successful. And from there on, uh, now uh, the UK government needs to make a lot of decisions. So will they try but the probability is high for that, to get an extension rather than leaving on March 29th, uh, leaving later in the year. So this will be the, in order to, to get some time and to, to, to bring order in their own house because the whole decision is reflecting this disorder in UK uh, politics. And I think so the time is necessary. And this will then decide upon what the future actually is looking like. There's still the chance that there may be a no-deal Brexit. There's also a chance that there may be a U referendum yeah and personally speaking i think they should have a new referendum but um is there any you know does the european union have any uh skin in the game enough to give them an extension i mean there's been a lot of time to figure this out and it's resulted in, in nothing but quite frankly political gridlock and an absolute mess within uh england itself i don't imagine the european union really has much i don't know motivation to say okay we're going to throw you a bone on this and give you more time I think so. The 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 the, the only real motivation is that uh, a no deal exit that would happen now and more or less uh, immediately uh, in, in in seventy days or so uh, is also creating a lot of havoc, a lot of uh, serious negative consequences for the EU. So there's no interest for this kind of worst case scenario. Uh, so this may be the incentive to say, okay, we are willing to give you a bit more time. And then there's a lot of uh, detailed problems. Uh, May 23rd, or uh, elections for the European Parliament, where the UK is not supposed to participate, obviously, according to the previous plans. And already the, the seats of the uh, UK parliamentarians have been distributed between the other members of the EU. But still, uh, this, there, those are things that EU is uh, able to deal with. So the, 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 there's a chance that the extension will be until something like June or so. 
And uh, this would give uh, Theresa May and her government maybe time to figure out exactly what needs to be done. The problem, though, is all this kind of options in Norway plus, Canada plus, all those kind of things that are being debated, they all need still a withdrawal agreement. There's no way this whole kind of withdrawal agreement of Theresa May is not, nothing about the future of relations between the UK and the EU. It's all about the transition process. And this needs to be solved. And the main problem is Northern Ireland. And actually, to be honest, I can't see a good way, given the situation, that there would be any kind of positive option on the table that will help dealing with the problem. And we have to take into consideration Theresa May is a, heading a minority government and this has the support of the DUP, and they are not willing to accept anything that is written in this withdrawal agreement. How to circumvent this is a good question. Yeah. Uh, just to tighten the focus on what you just mentioned there, because one of the sticking points is is the Irish border issue, uh, which has a couple of uh, sort of interesting angles. One, they, they, they want to stick angle this without sort of reigniting some of the uh, violence that has plagued that region in the past. And as well, they, they want to be able to do it in a way to kind of get out from under the EU's ability to sort of, you know, have control or say over how England manages its borders. Do you think that there's, I mean, that seems to be a major sticking point. Is there any way that they can walk that? that line and do both of those things in such a tight time frame? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the tight time frame is one argument. I mean, you know, uh, there's there are a lot of rumors currently. One rumor is that Theresa May is thinking about to keep, to make, to offer keeping the UK forever in the customs union. And this actually would solve the, the border problem. But then you know, it's no longer anything with Brexit because everything Brexit was about it was getting back more serenity, was having the ability to have their own trade policy as soon as they are committed to stay in the customs union with the EU, uh, there is no way that they have an independent trade policy, all those kind of uh, visions and fantasies that they would have uh, trade deals with the US and India and China, all, those kind of, all this is gone. Because in the customs union, all members are subject to the trade policy of the European Union. So, you know, it, there's, there's a, there are large trade-offs in order to deal with the Irish question. And even though uh, Theresa May herself may in order to, 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 to keep face and to, 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 to deliver what she now in the meantime thinks uh, is the Brexit referendum outcome. Uh, she wants to deliver those kind of things, but it's a long way uh, uh, apart from the initial promises. Uh, but that's why our politics, she may make this kind of offer, but I don't think so she has the support. So will there be new elections? one way will there be a second referendum the other option in the given kind of frame uh, it's very difficult to to to, uh, to to come up with any kind of uh, idea that would really get the support of the majority uh, of the parliament think about this huge defeat yesterday how to circle all this it's a huge conundrum yeah, it is. It's a massive conundrum, and it seems to be not going anywhere really, really fast. Um, just again, tighten the focus on a couple of things there. Uh, first off, it, it chances now that England goes into a snap election over this whole thing, a high-low? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely not by, based on the uh, no confidence vote today because there's no appetite to have few elections. Uh, the fear is that uh, there may be a, a Labour victory with uh, Corbyn, even though it's also interesting to see if, if they believe the polling that is uh, going ahead. Uh, so if I may, still has a strong support in the electorate. And also, uh, if the, the, the voters have this decision uh, in this post around the, the, the first around the post uh, system of the UK uh, to decide between Labour and uh, the Conservatives, they are still in favour of the Conservatives. So it's a kind of also reflecting all these kind of uncertainties. That, uh, it's a very complex situation, and voters obviously are not really diving too much into the kind of complexities, but stick to their kind of ideologies, even though. Uh, in the meantime, it looks like that uh, the 52-48 uh, split uh, in the referendum 2016 has now reversed to a 52 uh, staying in the European Union. But also, it's very close. So it tells us a lot about the kind of div- divided uh, policy in, uh, in the UK. Just an off-the-wall question here, because just again, I I feel personally like they should hold another referendum. But do you think that there, if there's possibility that, say, for example, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Labour came out and said, you know what, if we go to an election campaign, we're going to campaign for a brand new referendum, would that would that be enough to to start of get some steam behind Labour or kind of change things politically or no? Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I mean, we all know uh, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is not a big fan of the European Union, and he, so far, has really refused to make this step for a popular vote, how it's called, a second referendum. He's not a fan of it, and he obviously is not willing uh, to move it forward. Unlike, again, if you believe the polling, then we know that uh, a very strong minority, maybe even a majority of Labour members, uh, are uh, in favor of a second referendum. And again, the age structure seems to be very critical. The younger people are, the more they want to stay in the European Union, the more they would like to go for a second referendum. The older ones try to stick to their uh, convictions. And so it's also, uh, not only the Tories are divided, also Labour is very much divided. And all this is not a good sign in, uh, if you think about uh, how to move in a coherent way forward. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, last question, Kurt, before we let you go. Um, again, we don't know how this is going to resolve itself, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But if we do end up in a hard divorce between England and the European Union, a hard Brexit, um, a lot of talk has been about what that would do economically to the United Kingdom itself. It would be pretty devastating. Um, would that economic ramifications, implications, would that flow over England's borders, perhaps to global markets, the European Union, perhaps across here to North America? Would there be sort of a, a wider impact? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's difficult to quantify those kind of things. Uh, and the worst case scenario, for example, made up by the Bank of England, uh, comes to, in the worst case, to a situation where the, the, the GDP of the UK would fall by 8% points. That's quite a lot. And, and this would have ramifications, no doubt about it. But also on a very kind of detailed level, when the, the UK is highly integrated into the European markets with all those supply chains. And as you give you an example, the mini this car from BMW, 
produced mainly in the UK, the craft chunk is moving uh, across the channel three to four times before it's eventually assembled in the UK. So all those kind of supply chains, a lot of logistic kind of things, all this would, with a hard Brexit, have to end because there would be tariffs, there would be controls, there would be large backlogs with trucks, all those kind of things. So it would create quite a kind of a difficult uh, situation, uh, not only very short term, but at least medium term, and everybody needs to, uh, to adjust. There will be negative economic consequences also for the EU, uh, for the various kind of countries, for kind of Germany, highly involved in the supply chains and so on. So uh, it has negative repercussions. This will be reflected in the kind of sentiments of the global economy that anyway, in a kind of very fragile situation, nothing to do with Brexit, that's to do with Trump, and the other things, China and so on, and uh, a hard practice would add to those calamities and to make things uh, a bit more complicated and definitely in a negative way. Kurt, thank you so much for your insight. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs> you as well. That's Kurt Hubner with the Institute for European Studies at the University of British Columbia on the ramifications and uh, the impacts of a potentially hard Brexit as we wait to see how that plays out. What a mess in England. Oh, my God. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk about children and screen time. If you're a parent of a young child, it's something that's high on your radar and how to deal with it. We'll dive into that here on Radio NL on the Woodford Show next. of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Overcast gray day here in Kamloops. If you're the parent of a young child like I am, you have struggled this day and age with the vexing problem of what to do with little kids and screen time. A uh, real pleasure to be joined by the literacy, liter- literacy, maybe I should learn how to read, <laughs> uh, the literacy outreach coordinator with literacy in Kamloops, Fiona Claire. Fiona, welcome. Good morning. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for coming on. Uh, okay, so I know, and I was just telling you off the air, that when my little guy was born, Henrik, my wife was like, okay, no screen time until he's five years old. And uh, I think it took a, a pretty crazy temper tantrum or some kind of crying thing at two, and suddenly, you know, the cartoons on TV quieted him <laughs> down. We all went, thank God. Yeah. Uh, so now he does have screen time, but we're cognizant of this as an issue, but we also struggle to... You know, because now, yes, I want to play on the iPad. I want to watch mm-hmm. Thomas, all that kind of stuff. So, a how 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 big a problem is this, and what are the ramifications if if kids are allowed to just run away with watching whatever? Um, it's a huge problem, Shane. And you know, to be honest with you, it doesn't get any easier. No, I don't. <laughs> As imagine. the kids get older, and you know, have more autonomy and independence, um, and and screens, and smartphones, and yeah, you know, technology. I mean, it's an integral part of of our lives now. Children, young people, and adults, mm. and um, we're using it not only for entertainment and communication, but also uh, getting more and more for education. Yeah. And so it, it, it's um, there's a huge amount of time spent on it, and parents are really struggling with how to have some kind of control over it. Um, So yeah, so traditionally there have been some universal guidelines put out by the American Pediatric Society and the Canadian Pediatric Society, you know, with a certain amount of screen time per age. But um, a recent study that was just released now in January out of the UK um, through the Royal College of Pediatrics and um, Child Health have 
come at it with a different from a different angle and they mm. said you know there really is no safe amount of screen time it's 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 very dependent on age and and on how screens are being used and what's really more important is the positive activities that it may be displacing right so it, it's really you know they said they know that parents are looking for some guidance around this and um and I mean, I talked to my friends, they're all struggling with the amount of time their kids are spending on screen. Yeah. Um, the children in the study actually estimated that they were spending seven and a half hours a day between what? television, phone, wow. and computer. Wow, okay. So, yeah, so their, their advice is just that, you know, the sh parents should negotiate on, on an individual basis with their children, um, depending on their age as well. Um, with, you know, how much time they can spend on screen. They do recommend no screen time one hour before bedtime mm. because there is evidence that it interferes with sleep. Um, and then, you know, it's really just on how the screen has been used. Yeah. So, yeah. On, on that aspect, I mean, mm -hmm. your spokesperson, you've, literacy has been your passion for yes. a long time now. I was there the evening you got the OWL Award at the school district okay. uh, meeting. But, Thank you. Um, I have little nieces and nephews. And for me, reading has been something I've done all my life. Mm -hmm. Love reading. Um, I buy books to the point where my wife drives my wife nuts. Uh, but, you know... <laughs> it's a good I, problem. Yeah, it's a good problem. But I noticed in, in younger generations that I interact with that they don't read as much unless it's to read, you know, a tweet or a Facebook post. And, you know, it... I mean, is there going to be ramifications there for generations that, that potentially don't crack a book and don't read intricate things translating to their ability to turn around and, and write and or the ability to read interesting things? I do. I mean, I think so. You know, the problem with all of this now is that this, you know, screen use is evolving so rapidly with right. social media and that, you know, most of the research that we have available to us is based on television screen time, yeah. which was, you know, way smaller than a small amount than what we're doing now. So, I mean, I think when you're reading books, I mean, you're growing your vocabulary. And as you said, you know, it helps with writing and imagination and creativity. You know, people are still reading. Um, we, we have another program in, in the city, the Bright Red Bookshelves, and we give out 15,000 books a year. So, you know, they are still reading. They're reading different content. Graphic novels are mm. huge. Um, so it's it's going to be time will tell, yeah. like with everything. Um, but really the, the message is to just find that healthy balance. Yeah. And that's what our Unplug and Play Week coming up the end of the month is all about, is, you know, offering acti free activities for families just so that, you know, we can make sure that those activities that we know influence well-being positively, like exercise and sleep and socializing, that face-to-face -face interaction, are not being displaced, um, you know, to a problematic degree by right. screen time. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it, it, it occurs to me that we, like, this is so new that we're just dealing with it as the four, like we're, you know, you and I are sort of a bridge generation. We have a foot in both sort of the pre-technology world and now this, you know, crazy run amok technology That's right. world. But our kids are growing up in a purely technology world. And the yes. ramifications of that, I think, are, are so far flung that we haven't really sort of begun to grasp. And for an example, I read a fascinating article recently about apparently eye doctors are seeing um, vision problems mm -hmm. among children nowadays because they watch so many screens up close. Was yeah. it nearsighted or, or, or short? I forget. But it, their ability to focus on faraway objects in scope has gone away because yeah. they're not doing that in their real life. 
I, I remember reading that article too, and and I mean, there's actually evidence that our attention span has got shorter. Yeah, well, I can, you I know, can for again, that. with you know video games and everything. <laughs> you know, there's you, and we're constantly being distracted. You know, every yeah. time the phone beep beep. You know, so there's that. There's now like a, sort of a movement towards mindfulness and being more present in the moment. And as you said, we're living through this. And you know, my husband keeps telling me, "Well, technology. You know, it's here, and you know, it's this is the way it is." And I mean, well, not necessarily everything <laughs> that comes around is good we still need balance and i think you know as as you say as we live through this we're going to be become more cognizant to you know what we need to do and how much time is good and things like that and yeah yeah, the reason we just need a lot more research how important is it to establish rules at home about like okay we're off the phone now uh, or if you have younger children okay i need to make time to read to them uh, so that they're exposed to this and that kind of thing and like to literally say okay we are going to make a concerted effort here to focus on this the this new state the college and it's been recommended before is ap- you absolutely have to have some guidelines you need to just find a nice calm moment when the family can sit down and negotiate you know some some screen use rules that everybody can be comfortable with and that work for your family um one of the you know as i said is uh, screen-free hour before bedtime and that's a huge problem because mm. most a lot of kids are taking screens into the bedroom yeah. another one is um, screen-free time meal time and that's really a good time especially with older kids too you know for sitting around and talking about your day and and just finding out where everybody is at um they talk about in cars you know i remember the old days we used to play i spy in the right. car and talk <laughs> you know now iPad everybody's draped over the back seat exactly. <laughs> everybody's plugged and nobody's talking and it's you know they're talking to each other that face especially with young children yeah. i mean there's nothing that replaces the face to face um you know they just said you put your kid in, you know with an app and, and an ipad it does not replace that face to face eye contact you know the attachment all of that it's so important so yeah so you know you it's important they just said parents need to be parents mm. and i mean as with everything else you know don't let your kid go and play out in the street you know we you need to have some control over how much time they're spending indoors on screen and and you know finding that balance now uh, before i let you go how's the literacy, literacy situation here in kamloops i always assume everybody can read because i do it so frequently i, and I find it shocking that somebody can't but i mean i feel the same way about people who can't swim so <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. there are definitely those so <laughs> oh, but absolutely. How, how what are we looking at out there right so now? you know we we fit in with the rest of of the province and actually mm. the country and and the stat is actually 45 percent of bc adults struggle with some everyday reading activities so it's really high um and we meet people every day in our work you know who want to improve their reading and it's for all sorts of different reasons Mm. you know some you know many had to finish school early and go go work hard in the resource industry and things like that but i mean with our where our world is today and so information based it's even more important that we can read well and understand what we read so yeah it's still an issue and it's a lifelong journey is it across the age groups is it mainly an adult issue you find is it a kids a kids issue or no um that's an adult statistic okay yeah so actually we're doing really well in in our school district around um children's literacy good yeah that's because of all the work we've been doing (laughs) (laughs) might have something to do with the school district well bravo (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well fiona thanks so much for coming in really appreciate the time it's a fascinating topic and i'm sure a lot of parents out there are grappling with this whole screen time thing so hopefully they gained a little something out of this good thank uh, you thanks so much Uh, that's it for the woodford show today thank you for tuning in we'll join you right here on radio and all again same time tomorrow from chnl in camloops a stingray radio station
This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.